Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Brandon Monroe, Uranium Market Commentator and also CEO of Bannerman Resources, the ASX-listed Uranium Junior with assets in Namibia. Today we talk about the Kazakhstan's government's introduction of a two-week quarantine. That was the choice they made after recommendations from their Ministry of Health. We also look at the Democrats' support for nuclear in the US. They've recently issued a majority staff report which talks about the way that they view um, the clean energy economy in the US and the role that nuclear will play. And for our Crux Club members, hang around because we also talk about the Euratom numbers, implications for market and obviously investors. We also uh, talk about my thoughts about the OzIM conference which finished this week. That's the Uranium Industry Conference normally held in Melbourne. A few interesting thoughts and insights there. And um, in addition, we also look at Brandon's uh, predictions from last week on the end of month price smash. Enjoy the podcast. Brandon Monroe, how are you, sir? Well, thanks, Matt. How are you? Yeah, all good here. End of the week. Busy week in the world of uranium um, this week. Started off by, uh, I, was, I did that Oz, OzIM um, conference, online conference on Monday, finished at 4.30 a.m. Must admit, I my thinking and functioning uh, was, was not particularly good on Tuesday, but we got through it. And then a lot of news, which we're going to talk about now. Should we do it? Let's do it. It's been a great week for Uranium, actually. Fantastic week. So nice, nice for the conference organisers to come out with an online conference that's a lot more accessible during a week like this. Yeah, true, true. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in the uh, Crux Club uh, afterwards. So we've got a few topics we're going to talk about um, today um, and a few topics which we're going to say for the Crux Club members at the end of this uh, conversation. So let's kick off with the, I think, the news that people are talking about most online, which is what's happening in Kazakhstan and what are the implications. So what are you hearing? Yeah, well, there is chatter online about Kazakhs shutdowns and extensions, but, you know, I just don't think this topic is getting the eyeballs and getting the chatter that it deserves. Uh, we've been talking about this every week, so anyone who's been tuning in will be well across this issue. And I guess we we have been talking about it and giving lots of bandwidth to this topic because it's just so important. So here we are on the eve of Kazatomprom needing to announce an extension of their three-month shutdown. And unless you're deep into a uranium um, group on Twitter or talking to analysts who really cover the space, it's just not out there. No one's really talking about it. So great opportunity for people who are well-informed and who are looking to coincide other events like Australian tax loss selling coming to an end, etc. So what's happened? Well, the Kazakh government has announced that from... 5 July, they'll be reinstituting a hard shutdown for initially two weeks. Um, so the two-week period was a midpoint of three scenarios that were put to the Kazakh cabinet. Uh, people who've been following this would know that on the 29th of June, President Tokayev instructed Ministry of Health to uh, come up with a proposal. Now, the recommended path was, in fact, a four-week shutdown. And what the Minister of Health did is he laid down a few scenarios or projections 
as to what the daily hospital admissions would be by the end of August, according to either not taking any action, taking a two-week shutdown, or taking a four-week shutdown. Uh, and he recommended the four-week shutdown, which incidentally would have had 2,500 hospital admissions daily and the requirement for 30,000 hospital beds capable of uh, looking after people with severe COVID-related illness. Now, the president uh, announced a couple of days later that they would go the two-week path, but certainly reserved the possibility of either a two-week extension or further tightening if uh, they don't see progress, basically. And that was a position that was re-emphasised by the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, who emphasised, again, that extension would be reviewed. And I think the, the implication here is it's quite likely unless they really see good news during those two weeks. And the rationale for the two weeks was a little bit... Uh, it, they attempted to base it in medical science, seeing that that is the gestation period. So it seems to me to be here is a minimum amount of lockdown that they can take. And partway through that lockdown, Kazakh authorities, health authorities will look at where their caseload is and then decide if it needs to uh, be extended. So when you apply lessons to that have been gained from other countries, for example, where a lockdown doesn't have an immediate effect, it's not a silver bullet in a two-week period unless you've got highly localised uh, breakouts that you're looking to contain. I do expect that it'll be extended in some form. Um, if you look at where we're at with their case numbers, when Kazadamprom announced on the 7th of April that they would be initiating a three-month production disruption, the cases were somewhere around 50 new cases a day. You know, we're topping 1,500 cases a day now in Kazakhstan, and that is after some significant lockdowns uh, back in May. Plus, what we've got is a range of measures that the State Commission uh, discussed in conjunction with this announcement. And one of those measures is that 80% of workers in national companies should be working remotely. So that also correlates quite closely with what Kazadamprom are doing. They've got about 80% of their workforce, probably a little bit more, who are at home at the moment, either working from home if they've got corporate roles, but mostly on some sort of a furloughing arrangement. So, of course, they won't be able to come back to work and they're not going to want to bring people back to the fields, start acidifying new wells and doing wellhead development and then being told on three days' notice, no, the caseload is back up too high, sorry, you've got to go home again. Um, you would expect that Kazad and Prom Management are going to have to look for some level of stability before they would want to start bringing workforce back. So all the writing is on the wall for an extension here. Um, I'm, I feel for the Kazadamprom executives and I feel for the employees and, and shareholders. But in terms of for shareholders, well, you've got to remember that the last time that Kazadamprom uh, announced this production disruption, their margin went up significantly with the uranium price. So I think shareholders aren't going to do too badly. They've got a nicely inbuilt hedge here for the extension that we're going to see. It's, it's, I mean, obviously, not only um, Kazatomprom and, the, and the, the board and the workers, but also the people of Kazakhstan, because that, it does feel a little bit compromised, the decision-making, as you say, two weeks, 
it suggests to me that when the world of politics and science collide, you don't necessarily always get the, the right answers. And, you know, it would seem logical that there will be an extension based on the data around the world. But we shall see. But let's let's get back to Kazatomprom here. Um, what will this mean technically for them? I, you know, with, with their fields, there's been, again, conversations online, on, on Twitter, uh, in chat rooms, trying, people trying to understand. Uh, nice mug, by the way. Um, <laughs> trying to understand what could happen technically if this, if this extended period of uh, lockdown uh, continues. Will they be able to just have the fields ticking over? Will, you know, will, the, will the uranium be, I think the phrase was frozen in, as it were? Um, what are their options? How do they keep this thing going so that when they do get a chance to, um, you know, get things back up into production, the ramp up time isn't more extended than it needs to be? So the uranium production has been ticking um, because, as I think everyone who's been following this show for a while would have gathered, the fields were already acidified when the initial wellhead disruption was announced. And so those solutions that are coming out of those in situ recovery wells initially weren't affected but of course the recovery starts to drop and that ticking starts to tick at a much slower pace and that varies according to the different assets so the better quality assets will have a longer period in which they tick along than some of the poorer quality assets so the important thing here though is that after three months of no forward wellhead development, many of those assets would be ticking really quite slowly now. And if the production disruption is extended for any length of time, you would expect materially that many of those assets will stop ticking. So we will see production coming out of those wells that don't have a forward trajectory or wellhead development to uh, look forward to will stop production. Now, for your question on getting back into wellhead development, well, there's there's a couple of things about that. The first one is just sheer logistics, because uh, Adam Prom employs more than 20,000 people, and a majority of those will be involved in this type of field-related activities in one form or another, whether it's doing the wellhead development itself or logistics associated with it, etc. So it's a very big exercise just to simply remobilise that many people and you might expect that they'll do it in phases etc etc um, particularly which seems very likely for the foreseeable future if they need to be doing that conforming with all sorts of social distancing rules um, transmission rules etc etc um, Kazadam Prom in this part of the this part of uh, Kazakhstan um, where most of their development is uh, it gets pretty cold by about October um, it, they can start having decent-sized snow in October. Um, that doesn't stop wellhead development, um, but what it does do is it does make logistics that little bit more difficult. Uh, so they're probably keeping an eye on the, uh, the confluence of seasonal factors, logistical factors, but primarily it's about health factors and, and the government policy. I mean, at times like this, you, you know, you've got to be mindful that you know, people's lives are at risk. You know, you can't, you can't play with that. And the, I think the board of Kazakhstan Prom, like many, many others, are making the right decisions. But 
the same time, in the background, you've got a bunch of a, a cheering mob uh, of uranium investors who are absolutely delighted for a different set of reasons, in that this, the supply into the market is being drastically affected. And the hope is that that will drive um, you know, uh, price discovery in, in the marketplace. Um, in, 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 and what do you... I guess what's the question is, you know, what what are you what are you hearing um, with regards to when you think things could come back online in Kazakhstan, or is it just unknown at the moment? It's unknown. It's unknown. And what will be really interesting is what guidance Kazatomprom chooses to give. They they will need to give some guidance because they're listed on the London Stock Exchange, and they're they're very aware of that, and they've uh, provided what I think has been good, accurate reporting to LSE over this period. Um, but from about 7 June, uh, July, 7 July, that's when the three-month period since they first announced this, an estimated three months, comes to an end. So somewhere around that time, uh, they'll need to be thinking about updating investors. So the real interesting question is, what time frame, if any, does Kazatomprom put on the extended production disruption? Do they take the path that Cameco has taken and just said, look, we're, we're down for an indeterminate time? Uh, or do they try and play it the way the government has and says, look, it's this much, but it could be extended? It's the uncertainty of this that I think will have the biggest impact on the minds of fuel buyers in particular. Um, the cheering mob, I don't think they're going to be too influential in the equation here. It's uh, it's obviously important for equities and equity sentiment, but in terms of the actions of Kazatomprom or Cameco for that matter, or um, fuel buyers, that's not a, a, a relevant factor at all. That's just a sideshow. And um, people within the industry aren't exactly cheering at the moment because no one who's on the supply side here really revels in a competitor's misfortune when it's like this, when there are lives at stake, as you say. So what uh, what's going through the mind of fuel buyers right now is still COVID distraction. Uh, it's still, we're, we're not hearing about any real level of contracting taking place or mobilising for long-term contracting at the moment. So we've got this pause in operations for fairly understandable reasons. What will be interesting to see is if Kazatomprom leaves a very wide open scenario here, whether that's enough to get the attention of fuel buyers and them to start realising, as you say, that we, we've now got a situation that's likely to lead to price discovery. And if you're too slow in that situation, you can be on the, long, on the wrong side of price discovery. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, actually. And we'll talk about it in the club um, with the... That on the topic of what fuel, what's holding fuel bars back, um, we talked about it during the Oz IMM um, project. But we'll save we'll save that for the club. Uh, I just thought it was a brilliant answer, and one I hadn't really kind of under, understood it in that way before. But we'll we'll come back to it now. If I but if I look at so let's just again just stick with Kazakhstan for a second because the implication, the big so what. I want to get to the so what does this mean component of, of the conversation. I want people to understand why we're talking about Kazakhstan, why it's important to understand it is. So if I look at Australia, you've handled this COVID disruption extremely well. You've had less, you know, about 100 deaths, population, whatever, 24 million. You've handled it extremely well. Um, you've taken it extremely seriously, as has New Zealand. Um, 
the, the Qantas CEO came out with a statement last week and said, we are not going to get back to international flights until July 2021. That's how seriously they're treating it. Okay, that was a statement from a CEO of an Australian company. Kazatomprom, if they came out with a statement like that, that would send the, send the industry into a tailspin, wouldn't it? Well, it would, yeah. <laughs> it's 40% of the world's production and, uh, and the world's lowest cost production with the exception of one or two byproduct streams of uranium. So it would absolutely set the world into a tailspin. But I do think that a statement like that's very unlikely. It's, it's a good one for reserved for your uranium dreams between about three and four in the morning when on the, on the mornings where you're not officiating conferences on the other side of the world. But I don't think we'll see that level of announcement coming out from Kazatomprom. But we don't know when. The, the, the point is no one knows when. Uranium um, investors don't know when. Utility buyers don't know when. And until that answer, that certainty can be brought back, or at least some sight of certainty can be brought back, there's, there continues to be the great unknown for the supply-demand story in uranium. Well, look, um, let's, let's talk about the so what component here. So, so given what we're hearing out of Kazakhstan, what do you think people are going to start doing? I think, you know, uranium, people looking at uranium as an investment proposition, it, it's getting more and more attractive because the, 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 the supply side is just being hammered every, every day that this continues. Okay, the story becomes more and more positive on the supply side. The demand side, I think, is, is well understood. So for investors looking at uranium as an investment proposition, looking at this, I guess they must be pretty intrigued, confused, and maybe excited in equal measure are you, are you saying, I mean, what, are you, what are you hearing from your investors? Yeah, I think, I think that's a good way to look at it. I mean, intrigued because of what we're talking about. Who knows where this is going to go? Who knows when it's going to end? Who knows what the implications will really be in terms of Kazakh and Prom's joint venture partners and what they need to do? Um, there's lots of speculation about uh, what some of those joint venture partners who've been selling forward into the spot market what they might need to do if they completely run out of production for an extended period of time. We could see multiple producers entering the spot market to buy back pounds that they've already sold in the next 12 months. So there's an enormous amount of intrigue. And the confusion really comes from price response. Why haven't we had a more interesting and assertive price response right now? Both at a uranium price level, where the uranium price has sort of settled into a comfortable zone at circa $33, but in particular from uranium equities. And whilst there has been a, an overall negative macro backdrop and uranium equities have still done okay in that context, we're still looking at our cousins who are gold developers and so on, who are just being enormous runaway success stories right now, thinking, well, you know, we deserve at least that much. I mean, the gold bugs are crowing about $1,800. And you look at where uranium's gonna go to, on fundamentals, let alone on supply disruption. And we're going to take that sort of price uh, performance and rub it in the dirt. So there is confusion as to why we're not seeing a stronger response. And of course, the excitement, well, that comes from a number of things, but more and more, the shareholders and investors and fund managers that I'm talking to are starting to draw comparisons between where we are now 
and where we were in 2004, 2005. Um, multiple comparisons being made between, say, the Cigar Lake flooding, uh, flooding event. That was only a three-month flood. So that was a, a pretty short disruption, but what it did was it created uncertainty. There was an uncertainty about whether this giant new development in the form of Cigar Lake was going to come on at all. Were they, going to, were they ever going to um, solve the problems that were leading to the flooding? And the fact that there were multiple flooding events created that fear that one of the enormous new high-grade projects that was banked as filling uranium uh, demand for many, many years was suddenly in doubt. So that is a parallel that we do have here with this production disruption. And of course, it's not just limited to Kazakhstan. We've got Cigar Lake itself that's off in the moment, uh, off production at the moment in Canada with no line of sight as to when that's going to come back on. So equal measures? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think all of those things are running through uranium investors' minds at the moment. And what I would say to that is you need to take those three equal measures and give yourself enough patience that they all become relevant in a positive way. If, you can, if you're investing with just a little bit of patience at the moment out to the end of this year, then the intrigue will play out, most likely positively, I believe. The confusion becomes irrelevant because we will have to have some degree of price discovery by then. And the excitement, well, we'll know by the end of the year if the excitement was uh, justified or misfounded. But it'll definitely be there. And for equities investors, that's a chance to take advantage of the volatility that will follow. It's kind of interesting. I, I was looking and thinking back to um, the last run. And I think uranium price popped before gold. And this time it's the other way around. Gold's got a little bit more exciting than the uranium space uh, this time this time around. And it perhaps, perhaps distracted people from uh, what's going on in the uranium space. Uh, in a way, in terms of the generalist investors, so I'll, I'll be interested to sort of see um, what you know, what 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 are the parallels we can we can we can draw from around those time. We're, we're going to do a little bit of work on that one. I'll, I'll, we'll come back to the, come back to that. Um, but let me let me talk about the other great unknown here, which we've always talked about politics in this. Okay, there's there's geopolitics going on, but there's also the politics of the U.S. Right. So the They've got the elections in November this year in the in the U.S. Um, it's been an exciting four years for sure. Certainly, as I always call it, TV gold, um, because it's never been so polarized. I don't think in the U.S. I certainly haven't felt it in, in my time anyway. Um, uh, this well, I think it was was it earlier this week or beginning end of last week. Um, the Democrats have come out with a document. Uh, it's called Solving the Climate Crisis. I'm hold it up here. Solving the Climate Crisis. Um, fairly involved. 540 pages of involved uh, ideas for how they are going to. Um, well, how they're planning for a, cl a, a clean energy economy. Uh, for America, it's it's fantastic read. If, if, if get, you can get it online. I will make it available. Put a link um, below this uh, in, the, in in the description section. But you've had also had a read of the uh, the section talking specifically about nuclear and nuclear's involvement as far as the Democratic Party are concerned. What did you make of it? No question that it's uh, positive for nuclear power, and we don't have to go back that far 
to a time when there was a lot of uncertainty around what the Democrats' position would be on nuclear power. Bernie Sanders was vehemently opposed to nuclear power. And uh, AOC, of course, was um, saying all sorts of things about everything, but including criticising nuclear power. All of a sudden, what does this mean? It means that it removes the uncertainty of the US election in November from the mind of both nuclear fuel buyers and also uranium investors. So no longer is there a scenario as there would have been if Bernie Sanders was running with heavy support from AOC. No longer is there a scenario where the Dems could get in and that would send nuclear power progress in the US back by years. So what does the report actually say? Well, it says a raft of things and I agree that it's well worth a scan through and a read. Um, first and foremost, nuclear power is recognised alongside other traditional renewable forms of low carbon energy with hydro. And so that discrimination against nuclear power has been removed from this uh, solving the climate crisis document. Um, they strongly recommend the implementation at a federal level of uh, federal support for low carbon energy sources, including nuclear power. And they highlight the fact that a number of states have already introduced zero emission credits and so on to assist with nuclear power. So there's no talk of removing or discriminating against nuclear power at a subsidy or support level. And they go further in saying that that's at a federal level and states should be able to go, go further and uh, produce their own initiatives, which means that the states who need the baseload resilience of nuclear power can still go with their zero emissions credits and other forms of support to nuclear power to keep it going. Um, the, the report does have evidence of a little bit of compromises in the drafting. Um, there's a little bit of the, the old-fashioned rhetoric about risks and so on. Um, but by and large, they're um, founded in, I think, a logic and generally quite fair. So there's a lot of calls for the regulator getting tougher, et cetera, et cetera. And the nuclear industry, as long as that doesn't impose unreasonable levels of red tape and green tape, the nuclear industry would, would welcome that by and large. So very positive and now November becomes less of a important attribute for what uranium investors need to look forward to. Now it's, uh, it's back to the sitcom, as you say. We Thanks. can just observe it, observe it for its pure interest and entertainment value and not uh, for its effect on our uranium holdings. What I took from it, it's it really quite comprehensive. And if you look at what the what people's expectations were from the nuclear, nuclear fuel working group, they couldn't go far wrong by taking a look at what's in this document for some of the joined up thinking that I think we are going to be, or hopefully going to be seeing from them in the new, near future to bring some level of certainty into the, uh, you know, the, the nuclear uh, ecosystem the, and for uranium equities, um, some certainty around you know, how, how this all comes together to provide a you know, zero carbon, you know, cleaner, greener and or clean energy economy for the US. So I, it's, it's quite nice to see documents like this, but then it becomes, because this is, this is entirely the democratic position, there's no kind of cross-party component to this, so no doubt 
if there's compromise within the party, it's going to have to be even more compromise if it becomes a cross-party platform, whether it be through the nuclear fuel working group or something even bigger. But that all takes time. Um, so I'm not quite sure how to view that as an investor. Um, it, it, it's, it's positive, but how many more steps do we need to wait for to get an idea of how the US is going to react? Well, it does take time. And I think that is why the strong bipartisan support for nuclear that is now confirmed by this document is important. Uh, we're no longer looking at the Nuclear Fuel Working Group report that was released two months ago and just wondering, you know, how much of that is really going to get implemented before November if there's a change of government. Now we can look at it and say, look, on its merit, we're going to see those steps being implemented. Um, another thing that came through really strongly in the Democrats' position is strong support for SMRs and the technology development associated with the SMRs. Um, there, there wasn't so much on conventional, new conventional reactors, and there wasn't a lot of foreign policy emphasis in the way that we had from the working group. But equally, there wasn't uh, any debate about that topic. They just uh, decided that this is a domestically focused document that's, that's about um, emissions control it's not about the industrial platform. So there was no need for them to comment one way or another. So I would say all of the best bits of the Nuclear Fuel Working Group report have uh, been preserved in a bipartisan way by the platform that the Democrats have put out on this. Hmm. What does it mean and so what for uranium investors? Well, it's part of the, the slow burn demand growth that we're seeing in nuclear in the Western world. Nuclear is still driven by China, Russia, India, and the developing nations. You know, let's not forget that for a moment. But the Western world is projected to grow modestly. And more importantly, we've seen a number of years now of the US reactor fleet deteriorating. And that's been a, a drag on the nuclear industry and therefore uranium industry uh, really since Fukushima. The reversal of that deterioration is important because it stabilises what still represents 25% of demand for uranium today and a, and a very dynamic part of the sector in terms of leading long-term contracting and so forth. So it does matter in today's terms. And at a micro level, uh, decision uncertainty at a utility level, in other words, does the utility have confidence that they're going to be buying for a reactor that's still going to be operational in four or five years time that decision uncertainty does filter through into contracting decisions and the general performance particularly amongst a larger utility that's got a fair uh, portfolio of reactors if they've got a portfolio of a dozen or so reactors and they're looking at some of them coming off in a short period of time through an early retirement or an end of year retire, end of life retirement, they can manage the risk within that portfolio. If they suddenly look at that dozen or so reactors and say, actually, nothing's coming up to end and we've just got two 80-year extensions through, they have to buy for that entire portfolio and that affects the way that they think about long-term contracting, which does dovetail now into the next several months. And what what I see as uh, a number, a confluence of a number of factors coming together for them to reevaluate their procurement uh, policies and probably get more active in that part of the market. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that. Um, 
A lot of moving parts. I think I, I do think we should come back to the SMRs because I think it's going to be really, really important. You know, uh, across the world, lots, lots of com- uh, companies and lots of countries getting involved in that. And we can talk about that um, maybe in a couple of weeks. Actually, the Ben Hurd article um, or interview came out um, where we do talk about it. And I'll put the link again below here. Um, but the interesting bit to me in all of this is that, okay, the US, the politicians seem to be coming together under having the same thought about nuclear as a, you know, zero carbon solution, which is great. It's an evolving narrative. Um, I think you've got activists uh, as well uh, are now coming around to this way of thinking. Um, you know, and again, a few, a few have kind of come out in the last two or three weeks, you know, pro-nuclear as a, as a solution. So I think that's kind of interesting. We should probably now um, segue over to our Crux uh, Club members and talk about a few other topics. So Thank you, everyone um, who's been watching this. Uh, if you're at all interested in getting into some detail on a, on a few other topics, you can go have a look around uh, Crux Club. You can go there at crux-club.com. Um, so shall, shall we jump ship and uh, go and talk to the members? Let's get in the speedboat. Let's get in the speedboat. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.